Section two of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one War Part two. At first, the Nile Valley was divided into a number of independent states, each possessing its own corporation of priests and soldiers, its own laws and system of taxation, its own tutelary god and shrine, but each a member of one body, united by the belief in one religion, and assembling, from time to time, to worship the national gods in an appointed place. There, according to general agreement ratified by solemn oaths, all feuds were suspended, all weapons laid aside. There also, under the shelter of the sanctuary, property was secure, and the surplus commodities of the various districts could be conveniently interchanged. In such a place, frequented by vast crowds of pilgrims and traders, a great city would naturally arise, and such, it seems probable, was the origin of Thebes. But Egypt, which possesses a simple, undivided form, and which is nourished by one great arterial stream, appears destined to be surmounted by a single head, and we perceive, in the dim dawn of history, a revolution taking place, and Menes, the Egyptian Charlemagne, founding an empire upon the ruins of local governments, and inspiring the various tribes with the sentiment of nationality. Thebes remained at the sacred city, but a new capital, Memphis, was built at the other end of the valley, not far from the spot where Cairo now stands. By degrees, the Egyptian empire assumed a consolidated form. A regular constitution was established, and a ritual prescribed. The classes were organized in a more effective manner, and were not at first too strictly fixed. All were at liberty to intermarry, excepting only the swineherds, who were regarded as unclean. The system of government became masterly, and the servitude of the people became complete. Designs of imperial magnitude were accomplished, some of them gigantic but useless, mere exploits of naked human strength others structures of true grandeur and utility. The valley was adorned with splendid monuments and temples. Colossal statues were erected, which rose above the houses like the towers and spires of our cathedral towns. An army of labourers was employed against the Nile. The course of the mighty stream was altered. Its waters were snatched from its bosom and stored up in Lake Moeris, an artificial basin hollowed out of an extensive swamp and thence were conducted by a stream of canals into the neighbouring desert, where they changed to smiling fields. For the Sahara can always be revived. It is barren only because it receives no rain. The empire consisted of three estates, the monarch, the army, and the church. The, there were, in theory, no limits to the power of the king. His authority was derived directly from the gods. He was called the Son. He was the head of the religion and the state. He was the supreme judge and lawgiver. He commanded the army and led it to war. But in reality his power was controlled and reduced to mere pageantry by a parliament of priests. He was elected by the military club. He was elected by the military class, but as soon as he was crowned he was initiated into the mysteries and subjected to the severe discipline of the holy order. No slave or hireling might approach his person. 
the lords in waiting with the state parasol and the ostrich feather fans were princes of the blood his other attendants were invariably priests the royal time was filled and measured by routine laws were laid down in the holy books for the order and nature of the king's occupations at daybreak he examined and dispatched his correspondence he then put on his robes and attended divine service in the temple extracts were read from those holy books which contained the sayings and actions of distinguished men and these were followed by a sermon from the high priest he extolled the virtues of the reigning sovereign but criticised severely the lives of those who had preceded him a post-mortem examination to which the king knew that he would be subjected in his turn he was forbidden to commit any kind of excess he was restricted to a plain diet of veal and goose and to a measured quantity of wine the laws hung over him day and night they governed his public and private action they followed him even to the recesses of his chamber and appointed a set time for the embraces of his queen he could not punish a single person except in accordance with the code the judges took oath before the king that they would disobey the king if he ordered them to do anything contrary to law the ministry were responsible for the actions of their master and they guarded their own safety they made it impossible for him to forfeit that reverence and affection which the ignorant and the religious always entertain for their anointed king he was adored as a god when living and when he died he was mourned by the whole nation as if each man had lost a well-beloved child during seventy-two days the temples were closed lamentations filled the air and the people fasted abstaining from flesh and wine cooked food ointments baths and the company of their wives the army appears to have been severely disciplined to run twenty miles before breakfast was part of the ordinary drill the amusements of the soldiers were athletic sports and martial games yet they were not merely fighting men they were also farmers each warrior received from the state twelve acres of choice land these gave him a solid interest in the prosperity of the fatherland and in the maintenance of civil peace the most powerful of the three estates was undoubtedly the church in the priesthood were included not only the ministers of religion but also the whole civil service and the liberal professions priests were the royal chroniclers and keepers of the records the engravers of inscriptions physicians of the sick and embalmers of the dead lawyers and lawgivers sculptors and musicians most of the skilled labor of the country was under their control in their hands were the linen manufactories and the quarries between the cataracts even those posts in the army which required a knowledge of arithmetic and penmanship were supplied by them every general was attended by young priest scribes with papyrus rolls in their hands and reed pencils behind their ears the clergy preserved the monopoly of the arts which they had invented the whole intellectual life of egypt was in them it was they who with the nilometers took the measure of the waters and proclaimed good harvests to the people or bade them prepare for hungry days it was they who studied the diseases of the country compiled a pharmacopoeia and invented the signs which are used in our prescriptions at the present day it was they who judged the living and the dead who enacted laws which extended beyond the grave who issued passports to paradise or condemned to eternal infamy the memories of men that were no more 
Their power was immense, but it was exercised with justice and discretion. They issued admirable laws and taught the people to obey them by the example of their own humble, self-denying lives. Under the tutelage of these pious and enlightened men, the Egyptians became a prosperous and also a highly moral people. The monumental paintings reveal their whole life, but we read in them no brutal or licentious scenes. Their great rivals, the Assyrians, even at a later period, were accustomed to impale and flay alive their prisoners of war. The Egyptians granted honours to those who fought gallantly against them. The penalty for the murder of a slave was death. This law exists without parallel in the dark slavery annals both of ancient and of modern times. The pardoning power in cases of capital offence was a cherished prerogative of royalty with them as with us, and with them also as with us, when a pregnant woman was condemned to death, the execution was postponed until after the birth of the guiltless child. It is the sure criterion of the civilization of ancient Egypt that the soldiers did not carry arms except on duty, and that the private citizens did not carry them at all. Women were treated with much regard. They were allowed to join their husbands in the sacrifices to the gods. The bodies of man and wife were united in the tomb. When a party was given, the guests were received by the host and hostess seated side by side in a large armchair. In the paintings their mutual affection is portrayed. Their fond manners, their gestures of endearment, the caresses which they lavish on their children, form sweet and touching scenes of domestic life. Crimes could not be compounded, as in so many other ancient lands, by the payment of a fine. The man who witnessed a crime without attempting to prevent it was punished as partaker. The civil laws were administered in such a manner that the poor could have recourse to them as well as the rich. The judges received large salaries that they might be placed above the temptation of bribery, and might never disgrace the image of truth which they wore round their necks, suspended on a golden chain. But most powerful of all, to preserve the morality of the people by giving a tangible force to public opinion, and by impeaching those sins against society which no legal code can touch, was that sublime police institution, the trial of the dead. When the corpse had been brought back from the embalming house, it was encased in a sycamore coffin covered with flowers, placed in a sledge, and drawn by oxen to the sacred lake. The hearse was followed by the relations of the deceased, the men unshorn and casting dust upon their heads, the women beating their breasts and singing mournful hymns. On the banks of the lake sat forty-two judges in the shape of a crescent. A great crowd was assembled. In the water floated a canoe, and within it stood Charon the ferryman, awaiting the sentence of the chief judge. On the other side of the lake lay a sandy plain, and beyond it a range of long, low hills, in which might be discerned the black mouths of the caverns of the dead. It was in the power of any man to step forward and accuse the departed before the body could be borne across. If the charge was held to be proved, the body was denied burial in the consecrated ground, and the crowd silently dispersed. If a verdict of not guilty was returned, the accuser suffered the penalty of the crime alleged, and the ceremony took its course. The relatives began to sing with praises the biography of the deceased. They sang in what manner he had been brought up from a child till he came to man's estate, how pious he had been towards the gods, how righteous he had been towards men.
and if this was true, if the man's life had indeed been good, the crowd joined in chorus, clapping their hands, and sang back in return that he would be received into the glory of the just. Then the coffin was laid in the canoe, the silent ferryman plied his oar, a priest read the service of the dead, and the body was deposited in the cemetery caves. If he was a man of rank, he was laid in a chamber of his own, and the sacred artists painted on the walls an illustrated catalogue of his possessions, the principal occupations of his life, and scenes of the society in which he moved. For the priest taught that since life is short and death is long, man's dwelling-house is but a lodging, and his eternal habitation is the tomb. Thus the family vault of the Egyptian was his picture-gallery, and thus the manners and customs of this singular people have, like their bodies, been preserved through long ages by means of religious art. There are also still existing on the walls of these temples, and in the grotto-tombs, grand historical paintings which illuminate the terse chronicles engraved upon the granite. Among these may be remarked one subject in particular, which appears to have been a favourite with the artist and the public, for it again and again recurs. The Egyptians, distinguished always by their smooth faces and shaven heads, are pursuing an enemy with long beards and flowing robes, who are surrounded by flocks and herds. The Egyptians here show no mercy, they appear alive with fury and revenge. Sometimes a victor is depicted with a scornful air, his foot placed upon the neck of a prostrate foe. Sometimes he is piercing the body through and through with a spear. Certain sandals have also been discovered in which the figure of the same enemy is painted on the inner sole, so that the foot trod upon the portrait when the sandal was put on. Those bearded men had inflicted on Egypt long years of dreadful disaster and disgrace. They were the Bedouins of the Arabian Peninsula, a pastoral race who wandered eternally in a burning land, each tribe or clan within an orbit of its own. When they met, they fought, the women uttering savage cries and cursing their husbands if they retreated from the foe. Accustomed to struggle to the death for a handful of withered grass or for a little muddy water at the bottom of a well, what a rich harvest must Egypt have appeared to them! In order to obtain it they were able to suspend all feuds, to take an oath of alliance, and to unite into a single horde. They descended upon their prey and seized it at the first swoop. There does not appear to have been even one great battle, and this can be explained if, as is probable enough, the Egyptians before that invasion had never seen a horse. The Arab horse, or rather mare, lived at her master's tent and supped from the calabash of milk and lay down to sleep with the other members of the family. She was the playmate of the children. On her the cruel, the savage Bedouin lavished the one tender feeling of his heart. He treasured up in his mind her pedigree as carefully as his own. He composed songs in honour of his beloved steed, his friend, his companion, his ally. He sang to her of the gazelles which they had hunted down, and of the battles which they had fought together, for the Arab horse was essentially a beast of war. When the signal was given for the charge, when the rider, loudly yelling, couched his spear, she snorted and panted and bounded in the air, with tail raised and spreading to the wind, with neck beautifully arched, mane flapping, red nostrils dilating, and eyes glaring, she rushed like an arrow into the midst of the melee. 
Though covered with wounds, she would never turn restive or try to escape, but if her master was compelled to take flight, she would carry him till she dropped down dead. It is quite possible that when the mounted army appeared in the river plain, the inhabitants were paralysed with fright, and believed them to be fabulous animals, winged men. Be that as it may, the conquest was speedy and complete. The imperial Memphis was taken, Egypt was enslaved, and the king and his family and court were compelled to seek a new home across the sandy seas. End of section 2